0: And we're going to pick it up in verse 29 through verse 34. Now, as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And Behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet, but they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O son, O Lord, son of David. So Jesus stood still, and he called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion, and he touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight and they followed Him. Our gracious Father, as we come to this text today, we pray that the Spirit of God would illuminate it into the depths of our heart. We pray that You would turn the lights on down there. We pray if there's anyone here walking in darkness this day, that You would give them life. And Christ would open up their hearts, that they can see His glory and follow Him. We pray for any of your people here today who, whose hearts may have grown dull, that you would quicken them. We pray you would revive us with your spirit and do the work that only you can do, and be glorified this day to strengthen us in the faith of Christ. And may he be glorified, and may our Father in heaven be glorified through him. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I am so thankful to be back here today preaching to you without a squeaky mouse voice, and very thankful for how the Lord has sustained strength. What we see here before us is the last miracle the Lord performed for an individual according to Matthew and there were some others but according to Matthew's gospel this is what the spirit wants us to hear from his perspective and according to the purpose for this why this gospel is written a few introductory comments that I feel compelled to give before we even get into the narrative much here because it can be a little confusing when people come to the text and they read over in Mark and they, in Luke, the, the parallel passage, and there they only read of one blind man. And Mark even calls him by name, Bartimaeus. It's the same account. And that doesn't need to be difficult for us. You need to take great confidence that this is the word of God inspired by the spirit of God. God is the author here and he doesn't contradict himself. Always let that be your controlling presupposition and conviction, even when you can't figure out the seeming paradox. Because when we come across accounts that sometimes the Spirit himself does not even harmonize it, and doesn't communicate uh, that with us, but that doesn't mean that there's contradiction in the Gospels. And in this particular case, you have two writers, Mark and Luke, and they give us an account of one man... In this account, born blind or was brought blind, and he was the most prominent of the two, and he was the spokesman for the two, but we're only focused on this man, even given his name there. But Matthew here is not as concerned about the single person, but he gives us a little more information. There's another man sitting with him as well. Okay, so don't let that bother you. A second point is a matter of introduction this morning. It's for us to understand that these stories in the Gospels prim- do not primarily tell us that Jesus had compassion on people with physical needs. That is not the primary reason they're there. Now why saying that, I don't, run, I don't want to run the risk to minimize the genuine heart of God that He has for people with physical needs. His heart is really moved with compassion over folks who are ailing or deficient in some way. And God throughout the Bible shows us that He has special compassion on the poor and the needy, on widows and orphans, the troubled and the weak, and He wants you to have that compassion too. In fact, on one occasion our Lord Didn't want to send people away in the lateness of the hour because he was concerned that some may faint. So he wanted to gather them together to feed them, which he did. So our Lord cares for all of your needs. He's very tender, very compassionate, even for those physical needs. And people all around this world, or in pockets of this world, I should say, uh, there are some people that go hungry this day. And some would ask, why does God not care about that? He does. But He cares a great deal more about things that are just people going hungry. He does care for them. But He cares far more for their eternity, even than feeding and clothing and sheltering them. Unless we remember that, when we come to these stories, there will be just curiosities for us, and they're going to fail to have any impact at all. The primary focus of these stories is not that Jesus had physical or compassion for their physical needs. These stories, every one of them, is intended to say far more to us than Jesus meeting the physical needs of people. They are intended to teach us that Jesus is able to deal with every human need, and yet that is why there's such variety in the kinds of healings and miracles that he performed even to individuals. But These things are confirming his claim that he is the Son of God, the Lord. But the variety of the needs that people have and bring to him communicates something about the very nature of the various needs people have but also the ability of the Son of God To address them. A third matter of introductory comment that I'd like to give is really an interpretation principle. It's a matter of how we come to interpret this. It's a hermeneutic principle. And we want to be very careful when we come to the Bible and to narratives and stories and parables, the like, not to spiritualize the text. Oftentimes we look at a story and we draw in a spiritual. Uh, analogy and then we begin to uh, make these spiritual identities or analogies by spiritualizing the text that the Holy Spirit did not intend for us to have. So be very careful. We need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. But I will say this, the Scriptures sometimes do make those spiritual analogies of which we are supposed to understand. And I do believe it's true here that he's talking about something, and he wants us to see through the physical blindness of these two men, something of the spiritual aspects here. So with some of those preliminary comments in mind, I want to preach to you this morning from this passage on spiritual blindness. Blindness. Spiritual blindness is a very fearful thing because most who have it don't realize it. And you may be sitting here today in blindness and not realize it. Unsaved people are naturally spiritually blind. And the only remedy for them is for God to remove the blindness the Holy Spirit illuminates their hearts in services like this, where the Word of God, His word, is preached and brings to their attention that they need Jesus. And they call out upon Him, and their blindness is removed. It's not a remedy that we can fix. It's not a, or a sickness that we have a remedy for. It's not in our power, our strength. This is a work of God. And yet there are also deceptions and blind spots and darkness that even Christians can have that can have a detrimental effect on their life even to the point of apostasy and leaving the faith. Now I'm not going to qualify that statement. I'm going to move on forward in the, in the message here and I'll bring some of those texts in to bear upon the situation uh, as we go through but we need to be watchful and careful with our spiritual lives. And when Matthew speaks about darkness and blindness, blindness, he does draw parallels between the physical realities and the spiritual realities. So there is a legitimate spiritual reality or lesson here that is drawn regarding the circumstances of these two men, but pertaining to. To our spiritual blindness. I want to show you how Matthew has interacted all along through his gospel, all the way up to this point where he is about to go into uh, his week of suffering, and this is the last individual to the last miracle to the individual that he's going to give us an account for. So I want to back up a little bit and I want us to see this spiritual blindness. I'm going to turn to four passages. You don't necessarily have to turn there, but I'll mention them if you desire to do so. Or maybe you can jot them down and go back and consult them and think about their context at a later date. The first one I'm going to look at is Matthew 4 verses 13 through 16. And I want us to see in these passages how Matthew is then connecting blindness and darkness with the spiritual aspects of the heart. It says, After leaving Nazareth, he came and he dwelt in Capernaum, which was by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken of by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region in the shadow of death, light has dawned. Seven centuries earlier, the prophet Isaiah prophesied that God would do something special in the very area that Jesus now was. God talks about the fact that He will deal with His people as a result of them failing to respond to them. And in Isaiah 8, we read the very last verse there moments ago, and because God's people failed to respond to Him... There was going to be, they were going to be left in distress, darkness, and anguish of gloom, he says. And that's how we left at the end of chapter 8, as we read just those three verses in Isaiah moments ago. And the gospel writer quotes that portion. Gloom and darkness that God was predicting wasn't. Something that was coming in the far distant future. And between the two Testaments, the time when the Old Testament was finished at the end of Malachi, before Christ comes into the world and Matthew and Gospel, there's what we call the intertestamental period of about 430 years. And it was there that God, that this prophecy began to take place. And darkness and gloom came upon the people of God who rejected God. It was into that context that Jesus came into this world, into this time of predicted gloom. So the light came to His people, and they sat in darkness. But the promise was that The light would then be seen by the Gentiles. And we see the growing of this. But darkness and gloom and the absence of light is a spiritual metaphor that Matthew directly connects with the prophet Isaiah as it pertains to Jesus. A second passage was found in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus is speaking and preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this, and hear this carefully. The lamp... Of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What he's saying here if the eye is defective, and it's so defective, then that the very light that comes in can't make it to the rest of the body. But the light that it thinks is light is actually darkness. How great is that darkness? In other words, it thinks it's seeing, but there's no light there. The eye organ is defective. If you've ever been around a person with very se- severe dementia but who can still speak, to us in the room, it makes no sense whatsoever what the person is saying. But to the person, it makes sense and they're satisfied with it. There's no distortion from their perspective and others around who can hear see that it's not making any sense. His light is darkness, but he can't see it. Now I want to just be careful in that sense and just leave the illustration at that level. Our Lord is talking about this kind of thing on a spiritual level, that people that believe that they see... But they really don't. Oh, they write books under Christian labels. And Christian publishers will publish these books. And it's darkness. The eye organ is so defective, it registers light to them. Or it registers darkness as light to them. And how great is that darkness? I've seen this deception a number of times in my ministry. It's a very dangerous deception. When the the eye organ, the spiritual eye organ, registers darkness as light, people claim to be Christian and they know the language, they've learned the form, they know the vocabulary... They often sit in pews every Lord's Day, just like you are here, and many of them want to be involved in the social life of the church, and so they're around quite frequently, at least for the fun things that are going on. But there's a darkness in their soul. The light of the gospel has really never come on for them. They think it's light down there, but their spiritual eye organ is defective and how great is the darkness of their soul. It's a deception. Paul said that there are those who are always learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Our Lord says that these people draw near and honor me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. On another occasion, Paul says, These have the form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Paul tells Timothy, which is the pastor which he leads at Ephesus, he says to the pastor, He says, From such people, stay away. Stay away. Don't hang out with people like that. They're dangerous. Now, it's one thing for a believer to hang out with unbelievers who need the gospel and are lost. We're commended to do that, just like our Lord did. But those who claim Christ with their lips, but their lives are so willfully contrary to the Christian life, are dangerous to the body of Christ. Those who never join a church and come under its government, those who never submit themselves to the authority, that Christ has appointed for them. Those who never serve or get involved in true ministry to others, but they show up at the social events. Those who are intellectually stimulated by intellectual discussion of theology on deep subject, but their lives are so contrary to what the Bible says how to live. Debates on endless genealogies and vain and worthless things that Paul told Timothy to stay away from because they don't profit People get all in the church and they can talk about all those things, but the lights are really not on in their heart. Jesus told us to beware of people like that. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. On another occasion, he was given warning and woes to, about the, to the scribes and the Pharisees and the hearing of others, and he says that even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The lights are not on down there. The Bible is replete with warnings of spiritual darkness from cover to cover, Where the spiritual eye organ is defective and the darkness is seen as light and how great is that darkness. They don't even see it. They don't understand it. And this is what Paul was telling Titus, another pastor who he leaves at Crete. They profess to know God but in works they deny Him being disobedient and disqualified for every good work. Oh, they're around. They may be sitting right next to you. You know, the one thing about spiritually blind people, or I'm sorry, physically blind people, is that at least they understand that they're physically blind. But a spiritually blind man doesn't even know he's spiritually blind. And he convinces himself with conviction that he is saved. And how great is that deception. We are warned over and over again in Scripture about this kind of deception. We're warned not to even keep company with people like that because they're spiritually harmful to the body of Christ. But I wonder if there are any here this morning among us that are in spiritual darkness. Most likely, there are more than one who have never truly been converted in their souls. The lights have really just never come on in their heart. They're in darkness and they think they see. There is a form of love, but no genuine godly love. There's a form of worship, and you come, and you sing, and you go through the motions, but your heart is not in it, and there is no heart in it. A form of behavior like a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, and there's no real true holiness in your life. There's a performance on the outside, but the heart Loving the things of this world more than the things of God. That's a dangerous place to be. A third passage we find in Matthew is in the 13th chapter. And he's explaining in Matthew 13 why people are not being converted in great multitudes. Think about that. Think about that. The Son of God, the Messiah, preaching. You would just think that the great crowds and multitudes that followed him would be converted. And he actually said, that's not what's going on. There are so very few people out of all of the crowds of Galilee and Capernaum and and down in Jerusalem that were not responding to him. And he explains this, explains why this is. And he says in verse 13 of Matthew 13, Therefore I speak to them in parables because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. They were seeing the miracles. They were seeing things the likes of which they had never seen before. They could not deny what they were seeing. And that somewhat attracted them. And they followed him around. And they even ate of bread and ate of fish and had their tummies full. But they could not really see. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled, he goes on to say, which says, hearing, you will hear and you will not understand and seeing, you will not perceive. He goes on and explains why, for the hearts of this people have grown Dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest the Lord should see with their hearts, lest they should see with their hearts and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, and turn so that I should heal them. Blessed be your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. This is what he was explaining, why people aren't coming to him and these masses to be able to literally understand and see. There weren't these mass conversions, and if there's anyone that ever lived and walked the face of the earth, you would think the Son of God would be the one that would have this kind of response, but he didn't. And the concern here was for spiritual dullness. Oh, these people were around Jesus... Many of them quite frequently. They saw his great undeniable miracles. The people talked so much about what he was doing. It drew even larger crowds the further down the ministry he went. But why so few of them, why so very few of them were actually saved? Our Lord explains. It is due to this condition of their heart growing dull. And as a result, they would not turn the idea of repentance there. And there's the possibility of people constantly in church talking about the Lord, being around the things of God. But you could make a decision to close your heart to some aspect of the truth and your heart grows dull. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2 says, Some will depart from the faith, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. The Bible says these people are deceived. They don't even know they are blind. And one of the most fearful, I think it is the most fearful condition that anyone can be in in this life is having their conscience Seared with the hot iron. It's like taking the soft fleshy conscience and taking a hot iron to it, so that it just sears all of the blood vessels and and just causes all the nerves to to just deaden, and therefore it no longer speaks. A seared conscience comes from having your heart grow dull to the things of God. You willingly deny God in some area of your life. You sin a little, and the Holy Spirit convicts you, and your conscience is tender, but you don't deal with it. And then you willfully deny God in this area. And you press against your conscience and you sin again, not dealing with it, brushing aside the pains of the conscience that is crying out to you to repent, and you do not. And then you do it again, and you do it again. And each time the conscience voice is a little less, and you hear it a little less, and it's not as clear. And pretty soon, there's no feeling left in it because it's seared. It no longer is there to convict you. And you walk away from the faith in which you've grown up. It's one of the most painful things that a parent or a pastor can go through is when he sees a seared conscience and people walking out of the church denying the faith in the Lord that bought them. Oh, it doesn't necessarily come in the full denial of Christ, though it may, and it sometimes does, but the preaching becomes burdensome. The world becomes more attractive And there's great darkness in the soul. And the things of this world which he would not deal with, of which the conscience was screaming at one point in his life against, he's learned to silence it, push it aside, not repent, and not deal with it time after time until he just doesn't hear it anymore. And there he goes. There's a host of areas in our life that this this can happen. Don't let it happen to a single area of your life. Not a single one. That's why these warnings are here for Christians. We see men and boys getting into bondage with pornography, and it begins to sear their conscience. And rather than true repentance, their hearts get seared. And as a dog returns to its own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. He doesn't repent and, get and deal with it. Not truly. He loves it. He comes back to it. Conscience is a little less and a little less and a little less. We're seeing people in all of our churches that are so struggling. We see people in our churches also forging a lifestyle for themselves, a lifestyle of comfort. They get at ease and they get comfortable with where they are to the extent that they will not lift a finger for the Lord and sacrifice their lives for the sake of other people in love. We see people who so love this world and the things it offers, and they don't want to give up their lifestyle And they somehow find a convenient way to put this under their Christian liberty. And their hearts become dull and no longer can they see spiritually because their conscience is being seared. We see people who become embittered in a relationship. And they don't respond to the time in which God is crying out to them. And little by little by little until a point where they don't hear God any longer. They don't hear their conscience. And they become so controlled by their bitterness, they are so deceived and so blind. And the Bible says those people have become deceived by demons. Their conscience does not even testify to them any longer that there's a problem. Because they willfully did not deal with something. And they brushed it aside and their hearts became dull. A fourth passage we find in Matthew chapter 15. The question: Pharisees come and they question Jesus why the disciples do not follow the tradition of the elders when they eat. And they were bringing up both a doctrinal point and a point of application on that doctrine. And Jesus began to explain to his disciples, verse 8 and 9, these people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He finally tells his disciples after he gets finished explaining some of this, he said, let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the ditch. In all these passages that I just mentioned to you, Matthew draws a parallel from the physical blindness and the darkness to the spiritual reality in some men's souls. And all these passages are warnings to us who are in such close proximity to Jesus on a regular basis That like the Jews who followed him around or the Pharisees who were well-trained, so to speak, could not deny Jesus' power. They could not deny his miracles. They could not deny these things. But there was spiritual darkness in their soul and the lights just were not on down there. And they didn't even know it was dark. And blindness is a metaphor for someone who fails to comprehend spiritual truth and respond to it. And when you give a spiritual truth and someone can't receive it, it's like a blind person. It's like sitting in a cave in the pitch black. And you're hearing spiritual truth today, but some of you can't hear it. You can't receive it. You're not going to respond to it because you're in a dark, dark place. It's in a service like this that streams of light from the Word of God are going out. And some people get it, and some people are being convicted, and some people are asking, Lord, is there darkness in my soul? And some people are feeling a little tense right now. And they're hearing, and they're listening, and they're leaning into it, and other people have just dismissed it ten minutes ago. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants us to understand from this passage. Here was two men that were physically blind But who really could see spiritually? Notice four things they did that were instructive to us, real quickly. In verse 30 of Matthew 20, first thing they did is they cried out to Jesus for mercy. They cried out to Jesus for mercy. This is the way and the only way you approach Jesus when you have to deal with. blindness how many people talk about what they have done or their experiences crying out for mercy denies all of that nothing in my hands i bring simply to thy cross i cling you cry out for mercy it recognizes that he is in a state to be pitied. That's what mercy is. It looks upon someone with pity and has compassion for them. If you cry out for mercy, you're saying, Lord, pity me. Look upon my sorry state. I am a beggar. I have nothing to offer. This state becomes so real in the heart of a person who genuinely understands Jesus. He doesn't care What anybody else thinks about him, no matter how embarrassing or shameful, he is a beggar that cries out to Jesus. And we should all be beggars that cry out for Jesus' mercy. It's a state of humility. It sees one's great need. Secondly, notice with me, they confessed Jesus and yielded to his lordship. Son of David, they say. There's a lot of understanding with that. And then the next time they cry it out, they put Lord with it, Master. Master. And they understood this. There's some understanding. There's some lights that went on. This is the Messiah. This is the promised Messiah. And they call Him Son of David. There's a lot of import of understanding as they call this particular appellative of Jesus. And they believe Jesus, the Messiah, could heal them. And they go to the Son of David and cry out to Him, Lord, have mercy upon us. Unlike so many around them, they came to Jesus on His terms and not on theirs. And that's the only way you can come to Jesus. And Number three, their faith in Jesus overcame all discouragements and all fears that attended their circumstances to distract them. Did you notice that? The crowds who were following Jesus told them no. They tried to discourage them. They tried to defeat them. They tried to distract them. They tried to keep these blind men from coming to Jesus, and yet they overcame every obstacle. They were not overcome with the people and what the people would think of them. They didn't say, okay, and just shrink back. They could have easily yielded to that peer pressure of the majority. They could have shrunk back into the background if they cared more about what people thought about them than what they cared about their soul and what Jesus thought about them. They would have none of that. They cried out all the more, Son of David, the Lord, have mercy upon us. Not deterred by the people's discouragement, they overcame. Have you ever been tempted or discouraged to do something away from righteousness? Yeah. You know it to be right, but you're getting discouraged, and perhaps maybe even the brothers and sisters are are in some way distracting you, discouraging you away from your walk with Jesus. Never, ever go against your conscience, no matter what. And overcome those obstacles. If you have to, cry all the more. Cry over their distractions. Overcome the obstacles by calling all the more on Jesus to have mercy upon you. Ignore the crowds. Ignore the fears within you. Ignore the, the embarrassment Don't worry what others think about you. Only one thing matters, and that's your relationship with Jesus Christ. And it needs to be real. The lights need to come on. 1 John 5, 4 informs us that it is our genuine faith that overcomes. Revelation 2, 7 said, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life. Overcome. And that's what they did. Number four, notice here, they were specific about their need and what they wanted Jesus to do. Jesus asked them, what would you have for me to do? That's an interesting question. You you think, you know Jesus knew. He asked them specifically. And even ministers are trained. When people come to the minister, a minister should ask them what Jesus said. How may I help you? How can I help you? They're suffering and they're struggling and we need to know really what they really want in their problems. Are we wanting the right things when we come and ask Jesus or a minister to help? Is our will and what we ask align with God's true will? Are we coming to Jesus on his terms? Or are we trying to twist it to make it ours? James 4.3 says, You ask, but you do not receive, because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Pastor, I want you to make my marriage happy. Why is it unhappy? Oh, my spouse makes my life miserable. How about we change your objective and then let God change your feelings? Well, what do you mean? Make the glory of God your highest objective in your marriage and accept from Him whatever He wants. Maybe he doesn't want you to have a happy marriage. Hosea, maybe there's something bigger. Can you accept that? Will you yield to that and cry out for Jesus for mercy for yourself? Will you be so willing to address your own sins and problems and be so focused on Jesus so that you can overlook the problems of your spouse? The answer that comes next will inform me if I can help this person find the grace that he or she needs to overcome and live victorious in Jesus no matter what the marriage results are. The men were specific with Jesus about their needs. They knew exactly what they needed and they fell upon him on his terms. We want to receive our sight. And Jesus had compassion on them and healed them. Jesus has compassion to those who are humble. He doesn't care what other people think about them, And he responds to that humility with grace. Imagine being blind. Imagine being going through all your life, and you're blind. And you come, and you hear about Jesus from other people, and they're telling you who he is, and you come. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Son of David, have mercy on me. Heal my blindness. And he heals you, and the first thing you see is the face of Jesus. You'll never be the same. And they followed him. They followed him. Is there anyone who's been sitting in spiritual darkness and the Holy Spirit this morning has convicted your soul and now you realize it you've been playing the game of religion but you've never been truly converted and right now here's what you are to do you cry out to Jesus for his mercy to save you from your sins And be specific with what you want. You want His glory and you want to be saved out of this wretchedness and this lie of hypocrisy. You want Him to take away your sins and you tell Him, And you want him to take away those things that you can't seem to let go of because you just love them too much, but you know you should. You want it, and you know you're wrong, and you just can't let them go. Say, Lord, let my fingers go and deliver me from the power of darkness and pry my hand away from those idols that are keeping me from you. And turn all of it over to Jesus. I'm telling you, people, that's how God saves his people. And service is just like this. And he will answer that prayer of humility. Don't you worry about what people think about you. You deal with Jesus when the Holy Spirit is bright and hot in this very hour. Do it right now. And you can be free. And if you are convinced by the Holy Spirit that the lights are on in your heart, There are warnings to all of Scripture for all of us. Don't let your heart grow dull. Don't allow your conscience to be seared. Don't honor God with your lips only. Do not depart from your first love as He approached the church of Ephesus. Get back to it, or else I'll come and take the whole lampstand out of your life. Don't allow bitterness to rob you of your relationship with Christ or to love Him. Or to love His people. And if you don't, that needs to be a sign to you. Deal with sin. Deal with it quickly. Or else your conscience will not shout near as loud the next time. Folks, do not let your heart grow dull or distracted or discouraged from pursuing your relationship with Jesus Christ. Call upon Him genuinely in humility in persistence and call for his mercy, and he answers the heart that answers and calls for him that way. Amen. Our gracious Father, how thankful we are for these two blind men who called upon the Son of David and has given us such an uh, 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 an illustration of what we need to be doing every single day of our lives. And Lord, I pray if your spirit is working in the hearts of someone here or even people in plural who, who the lights have not come on in the past, who've been going through the forms of godliness but denying the power thereof, who have been ever learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Lord, I pray the Spirit of God through the preaching of this message would prick that heart and show them this deception and remove the falsehood and drive those demons of deception away that they can see the brightness of the glory of Jesus Christ and cry out for mercy to save them and be saved because they have come humbly on his terms. He is the Lord. He has the power to save. Lord, come and save in this hour. Lord, we pray you would keep our hearts from growing dull, that we would always be in tune with your spirit. We would always respond when our conscience bids us to. We would keep short accounts with one another and with our God. And Lord, you see everything that we do, even in the privacy of our homes and bedrooms. And we pray your spirit would convict us when we fall short of your glory. Convict us when we pursue a passion that is worldly. Convict us, O God. Let not our hearts be and conscience be seared and grow dull. And may we replace those lower affections with the higher affection of our love for God and desire to be holy and call out upon Jesus for His mercy to save us this day. Lord, because the gospel... The gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified and Him resurrected is for us who are being saved even this very moment. That's us, Lord. It's a fragrance of sweet aroma. But to those who are perishing, it's a stench. May that never be true of us. And We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.